here, uh, and uh, it's good to be with you tonight. Um, tonight, uh, tonight we get to talk about something um, that I don't think gets talked about much at all. I don't know if actually I've ever heard it talked about in church as a sermon topic, which makes me incredibly nervous, um, but we'll see how it goes. Tonight we're going to talk about sadness. Um, Ashley, would you put up that verse, or that, uh, that this is where it starts. It's a quote, not a verse. Uh, from Ethan McCarthy, who I don't even know. Uh, it was from an article I read. I didn't look him up, but I liked his quote. Um, Sadness is not the absence of joy or a stubborn Eeyore-like refusal to look on the bright side. In its proper place, sadness is merely right. At such times, no other emotion will do. Let's pray. Father, may the words my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of us in this room be holy and pleasing to you and may you minister to us and make space to meet us here please please we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ our rock and our redeemer amen uh, when I was in seventh grade, when I was in the seventh grade, uh, some of you can ask me more about this later, but I absolutely botched my chance to date Erin, whatever her name was. Um, I lost the opportunity. I knew it. I knew when it happened. I said, there it is. I lost the opportunity to be her boyfriend, uh, and I was, I was really sad. I was really sad. Um, when I moved in with my dad, I was sad at leaving my mom. I was so excited to get to know my dad and live with him. But I was losing something too, and I was sad. When I was 17, I had a mentor through this great student ministry, some of you have heard of, called Young Life. Um, his name was Chris, and he died of cancer at 24 years old while I was just starting my senior year of high school. Chris was the first older man outside my family who ever cared for me, and when I lost him, I was really sad. When, uh, when Jana Berry and I couldn't work things out, after two and a half years of dating in college, I was sad because we were losing something we'd had together. When I moved across the country to Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, in a little Chevy S10, uh, going 90 miles an hour with everything I owned in the back, like this, and one foot, one foot out the window, I kid you not, most of the way, uh, I was filled with hope and excitement for what God would do in my life, for who I was becoming, for how I could participate in his kingdom work of renewal in this world. I was so excited about all these things, but I was sad too because I was leaving behind a tremendous group of friends, a tremendous group of friends forged together over six years, uh, formative years of my life, and I was sad to lose them in the way that we had had each other at that time. When my wife and I miscarried and we lost a child we'd never met, we were sad. The fact is, friends, God has made a universe in such a way that sadness is possible, and not only possible, but at our current point in history, it is in fact the appropriate response to so much of our experience. And none of the experiences I just shared with you, and I just cherry-picked, right? I mean, I could, I could give you like a list of the last week and have all sorts of things I've been sad about. But in none of the experiences I just shared with you was my sadness the absence of joy in none of those experiences. Or, nor was it the refusal to look at the bright side of things. It was the right response to loss. I, I called my friend Jonathan today to ask him about sadness 
Um, he's a licensed counselor, and he's a trusted source of wisdom. He's an alumni, actually, of the ministry. I met him here. Um, he lives in Nashville now, and I called him, and I said, Jonathan, define sadness. <laughs> that's, that's our conversations. He goes, hey, man, it's really good to hear your voice. And I said, okay, dude, I, hey, define sadness. Uh, I'm a good friend. And, um, and you know what he said? I love this. Would you put that, uh, his quote up? I think I put the next one up there. This is what he said, like, without thinking. He goes, sadness is a response to loss without judgment. <laughs> This is somebody who thinks about it, all right? This is somebody who thinks about it all the time. This is a great definition, friends. Sadness is a response to loss without judgment. Every single one of us in this room has experienced loss. Every single one of us. Many of us are in fresh seasons of it right now. And we experience loss because of death, because of missed opportunities, because of change. We experience loss because of sin. We experience loss because of failure. We experience loss because of time. And when we experience loss, you know how we feel? Sad. We feel sad. In the reality of this world, God makes space for sadness. In our world, God makes space for sadness. One week before Jesus was flayed and strung up and abandoned and died for us, he made a now famous entry into this city of Jerusalem. It's a stunning scene to me. It's one of, my, it was one of the most loaded passages of Scripture for me to read. It's accounted in three of the gospel accounts. It's recounted in three of the gospel accounts. And it's stunning to me every time because this narrative, it's brief narrative, it's wild with charged emotions and interactions. So it starts in kind of this obscurity, right, where, where Jesus stops outside this city that he has, earlier we read, he's set his face toward and he's moving toward it like it's a mission to be had, to be conquered, to go through. He stops outside the city and sends his friends in to get this young horse and donkey so he could ride it into town. And as he rode in, it moves from something that feels a little bit weird and obscure a little bit. Uh, to, to kind of a wild scene. All this group of disciples around him begin to throw their cloaks on the ground. Some of them take hatchets out to nearby palm trees and start cutting off palm branches, and they go uh, and, and lay them down on the ground. So Jesus begins to ride into the city on what is the equivalent to like a red carpet on this horse. The commotion was, was so great that the whole city began to be stirred up asking, and at this time there might have been a million people or more in this city, on a pilgrimage for the Passover. The whole city was stirred up asking, who is this guy? What's going on? Because all these people are laying down these things in front of him to ride into town, and they're singing, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king. Who is this? This commotion has raised. And then the religious leaders pull Jesus aside in the midst of all of this, and they say, hey, tell Jesus, tell these people to be quiet insinuating, and, and potentially there was even more dialogue that's not recorded, that's, you know that you're not the one, right? I mean, they, they, this is heresy. They can't be saying you're the one. Tell them to be quiet, to which Jesus responds, if they were silent, the very rocks would cry out. In other words, the whole of creation is saying who Jesus is, whether they say it or not. It doesn't change that reality, Pharisees. And then we have this verse, verse 41. Would you put that up? I don't know if I gave it to you. Okay, I did. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Imagine this. 
Jesus procuring this, this uh, young horse, riding in with people, shouting his name, seeing this sort of, I guess, green carpet of palm branches or something, uh, into the city, having a discussion, of a confrontation with the Pharisees, and then he stops and looks at the city, and he weeps, and he weeps. And he laments over this city. And right after this, he goes straight into the temple. He drives people out. He starts healing and curing people. And we're told that then even little children start picking up the songs of praise that were being sung on the way in the door. It's a wild series of events. Boom, 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 on the way into town. This is a crazy entry, charged with a roller coaster of emotions. Obscurity to praise, to confrontation, to sadness, to action, to healing and humility. And honestly, friends, so much is going on in this that I w- would love to be able to talk about, okay? <laughs> um, and it deserves our attention, but what has gripped me right now is the sadness that's parked right in the middle of this story. It comes as a surprise to me, honestly, when I read it. In the midst of all that's going on, he pauses and he weeps, and in his weeping, he speaks to a city that can't hear and to a people that won't listen. He carves out this space to weep and to be sad. God makes space for sadness. He doesn't hide it or hurry through it or bury it. He makes space for it. This particular narrative is usually called the triumphal entry. And if you gather with other Christians a week before Easter, you'll hear a sermon probably about the passage. And it's not usually about sadness. Um, It just struck me um, as we're preaching through Luke right now how Jesus doesn't shy away from sadness like we so often do in our culture. And so like the verse that probably has been, uh, you know, sort of the baseline going through all of my preparation has been the prophet Isaiah calling Jesus a man of sorrows, a man of sorrows, a man of sorrows. And we are people who say we want to be like Christ, but how many of us want to be men and women of sorrows? The truth is, friends, if I wanted to preach about sadness, honestly, the whole of our history is opened to us. The whole of it. Adam, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Ruth, Saul, David, the whole community of Israel at certain points, virtually any of the prophets, Peter, John, Paul, mostly Jesus, any of them, I, any of, I could pick any of their lives and begin to, to look at and, and, and see themes of sadness in their experience. This theme runs everywhere throughout our history, and it's a theme, I think, which is only trumped in the biblical narrative by hope. The Psalms, the Psalms are the songbook of the people of God. The communal praises and requests and laments, this is what the Psalms exist for. Man, I encourage you to spend time with them. The people of God, this has been, these have been their anthems. These have been the things that they have sung together and come together around. This is what they sound like. This is what the people of God sound like. Of 150 psalms, almost half of them are psalms of lament. There isn't another kind of psalm that even comes close to that. They dominate the psalms. Sadness and sorrow. The sadness riddles our history, friends. And it riddles our history because loss riddles our history too. The reason I want to talk about this tonight is because I'm concerned that we try so hard each and every day to ignore sadness and to drown it out. Um, The first car that I ever owned was a 1979 Mercury Capri. Um, Do you have a picture of 
this classic car right here. Okay, so I found this image on the web. This isn't my car, but that looks exactly like what was going on with my car. Uh, so this is, this is pretty accurate. You can leave that up. My first car looked just like that. It had a sunroof, had a furry steering wheel. It was amazing. Um, it leaked water through the sunroof. The entire trunk was full of my custom speaker boxes that I built from Radio Shack, uh, and it drove like a dream. I almost died like tons of times in it. Uh, it was awesome. Um, I was driving home one day from school, um, and uh, when I pulled into the driveway, my dad came outside, and he said, he, he actually opened the door because uh, he was kind of busting out of the door, and he said, son, 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 and I said, what? Uh, and he said, what's that noise? And I said, what noise? Um, he said, you didn't hear that loud screeching? And I was like, oh, oh, right. No, 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 I just like turned up the radio, dad. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what I did, um, which at 16 was super logical. Um, what would have been an $80 break job, uh, you know, like two months prior was now like $600, $800 in rotor work. Um, truly, that's what I did, right? I had started hearing a screeching sound. I didn't know what it was. and I didn't know what to do with it. It was my first car. And I was like, I just built these brand new speaker boxes, dude. I can turn this thing real loud. Um, and, uh, and so I just began to crank it up and I didn't pay attention to the noises that were going on in the car that I was driving, right? Um, and I think just like I turned up the radio so I didn't have to deal with whatever unknown sounds were coming out of my car, we turn up the volume on things in our lives so we don't have to deal with sadness or anger, but th that's another sermon. We live in a culture, quite frankly, that, is, that doesn't leave room for it. We don't like to give it water or daylight. We like to cheer each other up. Let's get, hey, we like to just, let's get you out of the house. You probably need some escape. And this is what we do. We escape into fantasies. We stimulate ourselves with drugs. We distract ourselves with addictions so that we don't have to attend to our losses. And that way we can fall asleep to our sadness. But sadness is the right response to loss. And when we ignore our sadness or lock it out of our minds or block our ears from it, all that means is we're not facing reality. We're not facing the reality of loss in our lives. And Christian, hear this. We are people who are called to face reality. God's people are called to be utterly realistic to experience the world as it actually is, as it really is, to meet each other and to meet God in the world as it actually exists, not in some fantasy or escape. And this is one of the great reasons, I think, why we're plagued by loneliness so much, because we keep meeting each other in fantasy worlds, not the actual one. You only see my Instagram, and each time you see me, I tell you that I'm having a good day. We have no space or time or patience for the reality of sadness. And so we have no proper response to the loss that we experience so often in this world. And I, I suspect that there's, there's really two um, big reasons why it's so hard for us to leave room for sadness. And the first is a bit simple. Um, I think the second one's a bit more complicated, but the first one is this. I think because we think somehow sadness and joy are mutually exclusive. We think sadness and joy are mutually exclusive, but they're not. God made you and me very complicated things. Uh, in the words of, oh, I don't remember his name, the ragamuffin gospel guy, whatever his name is, uh, we're a bundle of paradoxes. We're a bundle of paradoxes. 
And sorrow does not have to quench joy, and neither does joy have to overtake sorrow. And if your experience doesn't provide you with enough testimony for that, I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about the standard experience of the Christ follower in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Would you put that verse up? Chapter 6, B, uh, 8B through 10. We are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Do you see that? These are not mutually exclusive to Paul. That I can be sorrowful and always rejoice. That sadness is not the absence of joy, it is the proper God-given emotional response to loss. And joy, friends, is not the other side of sadness. It can be had right along with it. I pray you have friends with which you have laughed and cried in the same conversation, and neither one has canceled the other out. But there is another reason why I think we don't leave room for sadness. And that's, um, that's because we lack hope. Because we lack hope. Because we aren't sure what will happen if we embrace sadness. We don't know where it will take us. We don't know what it will mean. We lack hope. We don't embrace the reality of our sadness because we lack it. And when we don't embrace reality, this is where things get real. We experience anxiety. And do you know why we experience anxiety when we don't face reality? Because the world keeps turning, whether we embrace it or not, and we know it. But now you've just decided not to be a faithful steward of the reality. When I turn up the volume in my car, it really did work for a while. I couldn't hear the noise, right? I couldn't. And a lot of times, I was able to forget about it, and I felt great. But every now and again, I'd catch a hint of that sound, or I'd remember that there is something actually going on, I don't know what it is, and I don't know what to do with it, and I'm terrified to face it. And since I didn't face it at the beginning, what happens? It gets, it gets harder and harder to face it later, right? Because added to, to the, 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 the sort of confusion, maybe, or the sense of, of I don't know what's going on, now I have added to this a kind of anxiety, and in the midst of that, I may also be feeling a kind of shame for not having tackled it in the first place. When my dad asked me, what that sound is, I, I felt shame. I legitimately felt shame because when he asked me, I knew, like I knew I should have said something about it or done something about it before. But what's, God, what's so crazy is some of our tricks actually work for the short term. I could literally turn up the volume and I got away with it for two months. I got away with it for two months. And somewhere in my 16-year-old head, that turning up the volume though, like, I knew it didn't address what was actually going on, and the longer I ignored it, the more anxious I was when I remembered it. And this is what the truth is. Ignoring or defying reality leads to anxiety. We've got a process we're working through here, and I want to put it on the screen in just a minute so, you, so I can help you walk through it, okay? But I want you to look at this, this quote for just a minute. It's really loaded, and it's from a guy that is, uses some big words. Uh, 
But I want you to see what anxiety does to us because you're going to start to see a cycle here, okay? Um, this is a quote from a guy named Jürgen Moltmann. Um, and he says this. He says, anxiety blurs vision and judgment. By the way, this should all feel really intuitive if you feel anxiety a lot. This, this, this language might be kind of big, but you should, I'm, I'm hoping that this is something you already know, even if he's putting words to it, okay? Anxiety blurs vision and judgment. We're paralyzed by our anxiety. And like a rabbit paralyzed by a snake, our very fear is our doom. In anxiety, our minds and our hearts already experience what we're afraid of. And this means that anxiety is seldom a helpful guide for our decisions and actions. Psychologically, however, there is even something more dangerous, and that is anxiety about anxiety, fear about fear. We are very well aware that anxiety makes us impotent, so we're afraid of our fear. We react to the threatening situations we meet hysterically and aggressively, and if we are afraid, if we are afraid of fear, we repress our feelings. Fear is a feeling, after all. This fear of fear is the really infantile and dangerous thing about anxiety. It makes us afraid of ourselves, not just of the future. It makes us feel that we don't know ourselves and cannot trust ourselves. This is what anxiety does. In fear, we repress our feelings. We don't know or trust ourselves. You know what that's like? To have repressed feelings? You know what that's like to not know or trust yourself? To have blurred or clouded judgment? Okay, I've moved through a lot, and I want to just picture on the board in, like, the best drawing I could come up with. Um, it's like a little four-part thing. Do you, were you able to paste that in there? Okay, good. This is great. So imagine this is like a circle or a straight line or something. I don't know. Okay, but that when you don't have hope, it leads to you ignoring or defying the reality of your life. That's what happens. So if you can imagine maybe my car, this might help again, okay, just to make it a safer playing field. But, but, and then when I ignore or defy reality, anxiety begins to rise up in me. And you know what anxiety leads to? No hope. Start over. Again and again and again. So I hear this noise in my car. I don't know what it is. And I think, I don't know how to fix it. And I'm working at Subway. And I've had four managers in three months. And I just do not think that I make enough money to fix whatever that sound is. That's what's going on. I have no hope that I'm going to be able to fix whatever's happening, and so I turn up the volume. And what that does is, it, it, is that is me manifesting the second part where I'm now ignoring or defying the reality of something going on in my life. And at some point, what begins to catch up to me is anxiety and fear. This, like, these things dance together a lot. And, with, and anxiety is not a good counselor. Anxiety is not a good judge. So I lose my bearings, and I start to not trust myself anymore in the midst of that, and I lose hope, and it becomes this cycle, this trap. We're stuck in it, going round and round in this, and seeing this play out, quite frankly, in virtually every single theater of our culture right now. When I read about the life of Jesus, I'm struck by this countercultural practice of making space for sadness, and it jumps out at me because I don't see that in our culture. I see it in Jesus, and I see it in his people. That this man, this tribe, who faces loss and embraces sadness. You know, you can actually break this cycle, this trap, really, by entering in at any single point here. By remembering your hope in Christ, by embracing your sadness, or by releasing your white-knuckled grip on anxiety. 
Any of these things would be a fantastic way to begin to disrupt this cycle. At any point, you can bust that up. But tonight, I'm specifically talking about this second one, this ignoring and defying reality, which tonight, the reality that exists in so many of our lives is a sadness at losses that we've experienced, friends. And many of us ignore it, and we don't leave room for it in our lives or in our friends' lives. Facing the reality of this, acknowledging the actual world we live in, which is one where we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The reality is our world is a place where sadness is a right response to loss. And I want to suggest a few things which I I really think will help our community. Live like it's king. Making space for sadness. The first one's this. It's not helpful to tell someone not to be sad. It's not helpful to tell someone not to be sad. Quite frankly, it doesn't work. If if I am feeling sad and you come up to me and you say, hey man, cheer up. That doesn't, well actually it does do something. It's now anger is added to sadness. That's what it does. But it doesn't make me less sad. And quite frankly, somebody expressed this to me today and I think they were spot on with it, that, that if I tell you not to be sad, If one of my driving motives when I encounter you in your sadness is to get you out of it, I would suggest almost always what's going on is not that I think that's healthy for you, it's that I'm actually uncomfortable being in this space. It says way more about my uncomfortability with the realities of the world than it says about your sadness. It's not very helpful to tell somebody not to be sad. This is a little bit tricky for us, right? Because we have this, this is not the only truth revealed in Scripture. If my friend, my roommate, my spouse, my, my whatever, it doesn't matter, it's, somebody I love that I'm close with is apathetic, is cynical, is lazy, um, you know, those kinds of things. Like, I am, I, it's fair, especially being close to them as a brother in Christ, to say, you gotta, you gotta get up on your feet. Sadness is not a license to other things, it's an emotional response to loss, but that's different than saying I'm sad so I'm no longer going to work or something. I'm no longer going to be kind. Whatever, whatever our Lord has to say about sadness doesn't contradict, for example, the call to love each other, to lay down our lives for each other, that kind of thing, right? And th- this gets tricky because I can s- maybe I see, maybe you see me sometime and I'm sad and I've been sad for quite a long time. And this all gets kind of messy because you start to get uncomfortable with my sadness. I've also added to my sadness maybe cynicism and laziness. Things get real messy real quick. And this is all going to have to be sorted out one by one. But one thing that will help for sure is to stop telling each other not to be sad, which we kind of do in a lot of ways. Matter of fact, scripturally, you're commanded to mourn with those who mourn. You're commanded to do that and to rejoice with those who rejoice. In our staff meeting, I was reflecting on the fact that I think that one's harder. Actually, I think rejoicing with people who rejoice is quite a bit harder. But you're commanded to mourn with those who mourn. So if somebody in this community, if one of your friends, if your roommates or whatever, if if a Christian among you for sure is sad, you're commanded to mourn with them and, and that takes precedence over telling them not to be sad anymore. That's one. Two, silence and presence... Silence and presence 
are very welcome friends in sadness. Silence and presence are very welcome friends in sadness. Words may be good, but they are far more dangerous. Truly, it is really hard to be silent and to be present in somebody else's sadness. Because you, you feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable in your sadness. I want to help you too. And those both cause me to want to do something like move in some way, to speak to it, to ask better questions about it. To, there's no quick fixes to it, that kind of thing. And it's hard to just sit and be. But golly, if you're in that place of sadness, it's real nice when someone just shuts up. When someone comes alongside you and is just with you and doesn't speak for the love of God, if you, it would help so much. In our, if it's not that words are all bad, they're just dangerous. And if you want to know what it means to love somebody in sadness, one of the ways you can love them is by being present and being silent a lot. It truly will help. It truly will help. Third, sadness belongs to the body, not just the part. When one suffers, we all suffer. Here's what this means. If you're sad, please do not break yourself off from community. Participate in our rhythms and our practices, even in your tears. Participate in our rhythms and our practices, even in your tears. We are, we, we, the, the whole church needs you. This is what the scriptures say. This is what the church has been saying for thousands of years now. That we are collectively the body of Christ and it only works well when it's all working together. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. When one part of the body is honored, we all share in that honor and glory and dignity. If you are hurt, please do not leave the practices and rhythms of the community that you've been living in. Now, I don't know how to ask your friends that are not Christians to, to, to share your sufferings and your sorrows with you, but if you are a Christ follower, you are commanded to share one another's burdens, to carry them, to come under them, to look out for each other's needs, to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. I should have no fear. Or I should say this another way. Another way. Um, I'm invited to have no fear to come into a community like this and be an absolute train wreck. I'm invited to be that way. And, and, and what we're all called to is to recognize that if I'm a train wreck in this room, that's affecting all of our livelihoods. And that somehow all of us can be caring for one another in this. I would love it if I never heard somebody apologize for tears again. I would love that. I'd absolutely love that. Sadness belongs to the body. It doesn't help to tell somebody not to be sad. Silence and presence are welcome friends. And sadness belongs to the whole body. Lastly, know this. The more your faith in Jesus turns to hope, which I suspect will be the trajectory of your lives if you're following Christ, that your faith in him will, will produce a more and more robust hope, a vision, and a hunger for the kingdom that he is bringing to bear upon this world, the more that, that, that faith turns into hope, the more sadness and anger you'll be invited into. Sadness at loss in this world and anger at injustice in this world. There are so many different ways to say this, friends. 
But when Christ comes into our lives, one of the things we begin to realize is how much we have settled. And when he begins to give us a better vision for love, for kindness, for charity, it will break our hearts how much that is not happening in the world. When your hopes and your expectations begin to rise to the level of heaven, you begin to revolt, to begin, you begin to be dissatisfied, you begin to suffer from the current realities which do not match up to it. You begin to get impatient for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm saying this at this last point here just because some of us have believed, and I don't know why or where that's a different conversation to diagnose that, that following Jesus means pretty immediately and pretty quickly that all of the things I suffer from or whatever will go away, but, but we're called quite explicitly to share in Christ's sufferings in order that we might share in his glory, to actually add more suffering into my life by carrying your burdens. That's what I'm called to. And as I begin to want greater and greater and greater things, I don't know if you've realized this yet, but a lot of us set really low expectations so that we're not disappointed, which means that you intrinsically know that when you have high ones, you're more open to be hurt. And Christ begins to take your expectations and your hopes and your desires through the roof, which means if you're following Jesus, I would anticipate and expect fields of sorrow, and anger at injustice to open to you, to be open to you, which some of you may not want. <laughs> some of you may not want. These are the kind of wonderful things Christ offers to us. This next week, um, on Wednesday night, I think, maybe Thursday, um, you can keep sort of tabs on social media or something to keep up with it. We're going to host a seminar on sadness, um, probably emotions in general, um, and we'll try to cover the gamut of things. Um, uh, I might, I'm trying to, trying to get my friend Jonathan to come over, so I'm going to give you guys uh, his Facebook or his phone, mo phone number or something so you can pester him and bring him here. Um, but next Wednesday night down in the Hub, we'll end up doing a seminar on some more of this stuff to allow for some time for questions. And tonight, after the house, um, maybe 15 minutes after or so like that, um, but we're, we'll just be playing, uh, I think, the greatest movie dealing with this topic, um, Pixar's Inside Out. Um, so I encourage you to hang out down there and get to know someone new. Um, and, and right now, we're about to sing a song. Um, again, we're about to sing some songs to God, and, and there couldn't really be a more apt song. Um, 1873, Horatio, this guy named Horatio stayed in Chicago for business. Maybe you've heard this story. He stayed in Chicago for business while he's, he um, sent his wife and his four surviving children um, across the Atlantic to Europe. Four days in, he got a telegraph. And this telegraph said this, Saved alone, what shall I do? So his wife sent, saved alone, what shall I do? Their ship collided with another one, and they lost all four children in the Atlantic Ocean. And Horatio immediately booked a ship to go join his grieving wife on the other side of the ocean. And about four days into the trip, the captain actually called him up and said, hey, this is about the spot where you lost your children. And Horatio, in that moment, penned the song that we're about to sing. Um, and as we sing th that song, I I'm hoping that you can pay attention to the fact that here's a man who is not rejecting sadness, but he's embracing it, and he's embracing hope at the same time. And for many of us, I think we miss out on hope because we don't know how to embrace sadness. We miss out on sadness because we don't embrace hope, and there's so much God wants to teach us in the midst of it.